Expanding efforts in Southern Arizona to educate the next generation of trade laborers. All of the programs in our, in our division are in high demand. The threat posed by the spread of a more contagious variant of the coronavirus. Which eventually will catch up with almost everyone who is not vaccinated. And what Arizonans can expect from newly passed tax cuts. It amounts to the biggest tax cut Arizona's seen in years. Hello and welcome to Arizona 360. I'm Lorraine Rivera. Thanks so much for joining us. The pandemic forced tens of millions of Americans out of the workforce. Now as the economy recovers, their help is wanted again. But some employers are struggling to hire. As Tony Paniagua reports, demand is especially high for skilled trade workers. Cade Industries is a Tucson-based homegrown metal fabrication company. It was established in the 1940s and has continued to expand throughout the decades. The company depends on hundreds of qualified employees to accomplish its mission. Sharon Niekamp is one of them. She's based in the welding area, a relatively new environment for her and very different from her previous profession. Niekamp used to be a busy nurse in intensive care. Nursing is like walking into work and putting your head in a vice. This is nothing like that. You know, with nursing, you're constantly reacting to and trying to um, mitigate. Kneekamp loved helping patients, she says, but her job was requiring a never-growing amount of paperwork each day. After 20 years in that field, she was ready for a change. It involved challenges. After I became a homeowner, I kind of was looking into different paths and had become more hands-on because you have to. And I thought, well, it'd be really nice to be able to stick a couple pieces of metal together. I could make my own gates, that sort of thing. So I decided to enroll for a class at Pima, just thinking it would be, it would be useful and it would be a great hobby. I fell in love from my first day in the welding booth. And I said, no, this is what I want to do. Like many other companies across the country, Cade Industries has a need for machinists, project engineers, and maintenance electricians. People in the trade, such as Neekamp and her welding skills. Dirk Schneider is one of the managers here. It's something that the, uh, as we move forward, something that the uh, industry trends have been showing that uh, we're falling short. So having individuals willing to take the necessary steps towards the training towards the certifications is, is an extreme benefit to the industry and the company that they're working for. Camp's training at Pima Community College is one of dozens of certificate programs that can take from six months to a year to complete, although they can be supplemented with additional education. This new automotive technology and innovation center encompasses about 50,000 square feet. It is scheduled to open for in-person learning for the fall semester on August 19th. Students will get hands-on experience, covering topics such as engine diagnosis and repair, steering alignment, and electric vehicles. Greg Wilson is the Dean of Applied Technology at the college. And I actually had an earlier conversation. We're looking at bringing in uh, a kit so students can actually learn how to do conversions from internal combustion engines to electric. And we're always looking to see, you know, what can we offer that will better prepare students for the different types of uh, careers that are out there. This is one of the three OEM areas, original equipment manufacturers. So this room in particular, uh, we recently signed a, 
uh, contract with Ford Motor Company out of Detroit. And so we will deliver Ford specific training in this room. PCC also received millions of dollars from the state to expand its other trades programs. New buildings will offer more space and opportunities for additional students in areas such as CAD, computer-aided design, and HVAC, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. Students that have technical skill sets, whether it's automotive, uh, HVAC, for example, design in our CAD program, uh, certainly welding and machining, all of the programs in our, in our division are in high demand. So is aviation technology, and that's where 21-year-old Jose Perez is planning to soar. I've heard about it through a couple of my family members at first that have been through this program and have had major success. And in hopes for me going through it and finishing everything, that uh, it pays out for me as well. Perez prefers working with his hands, moving around instead of sitting at an office in front of a computer. He's not interested in a traditional four-year university. Even, for example, people at my job, they, um, they've had a bachelor's degree and, and some crazy degree. They've been in school for six years and they're stuck working at a restaurant. And uh, so, and I figured in aviation, there's a lot of job opportunities, even right after school. For Sharon Niekamp, her bachelor's in nursing was desirable and profitable. Still, she took a pay cut to enter this field. No regrets, she says. The trades are wide open, there are jobs available, especially for women, you know, more women need to consider themselves in these roles. You don't need massive brute strength to be a welder. I think it took age and maturity to be able to look at myself a different way and say, you know, I think from a personal standpoint, maybe this would be a better fit. And it definitely has been. I wish I had done it a long time ago. <laughs> The latest unemployment figures put Arizona's jobless rate at 6.7 percent, slightly above the national average. The trades are one of the many industries with openings. For insight into the fuller picture and how labor shortages are impacting the state's business landscape, we turn to Danny Seiden, president and CEO of the Arizona Chamber of Commerce and Industry. We're no different than, than the rest of the country uh, in this area. However, I would address one one particular area that I've you know I'm new in the job. I've had a couple of different conversations. Healthcare, we have an acute shortage right now of nurses, and that's probably because of the pandemic in particular. There's th these were heroes, front front frontline workers who are suffering a lot of burnout, and our hospitals and their CEOs are being very innovative in how they're trying to address this. Lorraine, they're, they're seeking out-of-state workers and uh, out-of-state nurses, out-of-state doctors, and the governor and legislature have waived a lot of licensing requirements, allowing people to come in across state lines to address that. When you hear about occupational um, licensing reform, it might not sound like this really fun, exciting idea, but that's how you address this in, in one way, is you allow people to come in from out of states. We have the jobs here. What we need are the workforce. If programs and supports, financial supports are in place, why does it seem to continue lagging? Is it because people simply don't want to do that type of work? Um. I'm never going to say that people would rather stay home than go get a job. We had this unprecedented time in our country where we're going through a pandemic and more money was coming in for unemployment benefits. People weren't leaving their houses. Lifestyles were changing. And I think our country just went through a really challenging time. 
And so now I think we'll see a reevaluation of priorities. As I said before, I think uh, employers are going to get very innovative, whether the offerings are not just signing bonuses, but the ability to, to work from home, child care. It's a worker's market. It's a buyer's market. So I think employers are going to have to do what they can to get people through the door. If there is a labor shortage in certain industries, does that impact whether or not a business wants to relocate or start its work here in the state of Arizona? Yes, I, I I have not heard that from you know from any business so far, and I'm involved with the ACA in Sandra Watson at the Commerce Authority pretty closely. And when it comes to um, business relocation, they're at the forefront of that battle. And our universities have stepped up to the plate. We are graduating thousands upon thousands of engineers to meet the demand of these companies that are coming here now. So bottom line, I mean, there is a need all across the nation, but you're particularly proud of the efforts here in Arizona to meet those challenges and to get people into the workforce. Absolutely. I have a lot of members who are, you know, in the, the home building workforce who are in the commercial building workforce, and they talk about all the time for the need for laborers, for the need for skilled workforce. And they are paying top market uh, price right now. And it does trickle down to consumers. It's unfortunate in one aspect if you're uh, trying to buy a house right now, but if you're a homeowner, you're seeing the, the value of your home go up. So there are two sides to that coin. You know, people vote with their feet. You've heard that when it comes to where you want to live. And people are voting on Arizona right now. It's a great place. They know there's opportunity here. And that's driven in large part by our policies and by our people. We're, we, we demonstrate warmth to everyone who comes there, not just by our weather, by our people too. All right, Danny Seiden from the Arizona Chamber of Commerce. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lauren. Thanks for having me. This week, Pima County rescinded its COVID-19 emergency resolution. The Board of Supervisors enacted it in March of last year. It allowed the county to require masks and limit crowd sizes. More than 60% of people in Pima County who are old enough to receive the vaccine are fully vaccinated. But for those who remain unvaccinated, including children, the so-called Delta variant presents a threat as it becomes a dominant strain across the U.S. We discuss the risk with University of Arizona epidemiologist Michael Warby. Yeah, this variant most likely arose in India. That's where it was found first, and it was involved in one of their earlier intense waves and has spread all around the world now. And in in the UK, for example, uh, it wiped out the previous high transmiss uh, transmissibility variant, the alpha variant, uh, really in a matter of weeks. And it's on its way to, to doing the same thing in the U.S. now. If you are not vaccinated, as I understand it, you are more at risk of contracting this variant. Is that correct? Yeah. And and I would I would say it's kind of a tale of two populations that uh, uh, if you're vaccinated, e even though the vaccine is slightly less protective against catching this more contagious variant of the COVID-19 virus, uh, you're still very, very well protected against severe outcomes, being hospitalized or dying. Uh, and, and so those people who are vaccinated are in pretty good shape and, and need not hit the panic button with this virus. But if you're not vaccinated, this virus is still out there. It's spreading uh, very quickly. And if you do get 
infected with this uh, or your family members get infected with this, uh, it is more severe than the viruses that circulated earlier on in the, in the pandemic. So it really is a, a, you know, the bottom line is you don't want to get this variant. You want to get the vaccine so that you are protected against it. It seems there are mixed messages when it comes to wearing a mask, whether or not you are vaccinated. What is your recommendation? I would say it makes sense to follow the CDC's uh, recommendations for the most part. Um, but if you if you are vaccinated, but for example, you 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 live with someone uh, who is not vaccinated uh, or someone who is vaccinated but has conditions like diabetes that that could make even if, if they're vaccinated could make their outcome uh, upon infection worse than most people. Uh, you may want to wear a mask when you go out publicly, uh, especially in indoor spaces, because you can pick this virus up. Even even the the earlier variants that were less transmissible, one in twenty people uh, who got infected during that study were people who were vaccinated rather than the placebo group. Earlier, you mentioned younger people, for example, children under the age of 12. Are they at particular risk of contracting this variant? They're showing up in higher numbers uh, than with previous variants. But again, most of that, I think, is just due to this, this virus is not targeting particular age groups. It, it's infecting anyone uh, who is exposed and uh, has particularly uh, has not been vaccinated. Uh, and so the under 12s are in that category. For most people under 12, uh, the virus is not uh, causing huge problems, but for a fraction uh, of those people, uh, of those kids, uh, this virus can lead to all sorts of unpleasant uh, uh symptoms. And finally, Dr. Warby, it seems there are conflicting messages when it comes to the World Health Organization, uh, the Centers for Disease Control, the state and county. What is your advice to people who are not vaccinated or wearing a mask and vaccinated and really struggling with the possibility of uh, another phase of illness running through communities? The bottom line here is uh, we have the tool that can protect basically everyone from this virus. And so get the vaccine. It, you know, if you're concerned about the vaccine, um, the, the real comparison is not between getting the vaccine and not getting the vaccine. It's between getting the vaccine and getting hit by this more transmissible, more dangerous variant, which eventually will catch up with almost everyone who is not vaccinated. Um, and it's just a no-brainer in terms of the risk, the, the, the risks of getting this virus, um, even for younger people, are much, much higher than the, the, the very modest risks associated with the vaccine. Okay. Dr. Michael Warby from the University of Arizona, thank you. Thank you.
This month, the city of Tucson's new budget took effect. The mayor and council gave it unanimous approval in June. It sets aside tens of millions of dollars for road repairs, community safety programs, and pay raises for city employees. A statement from Mayor Regina Romero noted that COVID-19 has tested the city's limits. We discussed how the pandemic has shaped Tucson's current priorities with city manager Michael Ortega. Clearly, uh, we were very concerned about our finances and our, our financial situation. Uh, it was uh, something that none of us knew what the impact would be. What we did is we immediately started uh, to scale back on expenses, make projections. Uh, we actually had a projection of a 15% reduction in revenues uh, during, during last fiscal year. Um, and, and we also uh, engaged the council in a very meaningful way by going to them on a monthly basis with a report. So it was a real-time opportunity for them uh, to weigh in, make adjustments, uh, and I'll use the term on the fly, which, uh, you know, in the government is a little bit different because oftentimes what happens is you establish a budget and that's, and that's almost the only time you hear the conversations about the budget until the end of the year and then you get into the, the next fiscal year. Revenues were, were slightly better than we had projected. Uh, and so we were able to end the year in, in the black um, which is really a, a tall order during all the uncertainty. Consumer spending habits changed during the pandemic. How did sales tax revenue fare? So, as you know, cities uh, mostly rely on sales tax. And right before the pandemic, right before about a year or so before the pandemic, uh, there was a, a case law that uh, came into play called the Wayfair case, which basically gave cities and states the opportunity to charge sales tax on Internet sales. And so because the spending habits went from brick and mortar to online sales, uh, we didn't know what the impact was going to be when it happened. But what we found is that although the spending habit and the way that people purchased goods uh, changed, we were able to continue to see some of the revenue that came uh, that was that was coming into the city. The city received something like ninety five million dollars from the federal government. What impact did that have? So it was, a, it was a huge impact. Uh, the Mayor Romero and City Council really uh, were very deliberate in how those dollars were expended to make the biggest impact possible across the community. Uh, there were uh, social um, uh, service agencies that were shored up during this time, uh, helping um, basically residents uh, with everything from utility payments to rental assistance, et cetera. Uh, also gave us opportunity to really look at shoring up some of our public safety uh, efforts. Uh, as you know, we, we had uh, a variety of additional costs. You know, when you go from, you know, we'll call it the good old days right before the pandemic, uh, and everything has to be sanitized and cleaned, everything from playground equipment to offices to a variety of, of, of areas, uh, those costs start to, to accumulate. And so what was what we were able to do is utilize some of those dollars specifically for that. Now, ultimately, um, you know, some of the longer term opportunities were shoring up our broadband and availability of broadband throughout the community. We're still working on that. I think that with some of the American Rescue Plan monies, we'll be able to have even more conversation around that uh, and include uh, uh, private sector partners as well. It's somewhat historic, but $14 million for road repair, something that motorists will say is long overdue. How were you able to make that happen in this budget? The, the majority of, of road repair money comes from gas tax. Well, we don't normally use, we'll call it the operating budget to shore up the roads. 
But because we ended the year in the black, the council immediately uh, really saw that as an opportunity to shore up the roads and asked, uh, asked me to, to really explore a $14 million infusion of dollars for road repair. And so really excited about that. Uh, they've actually uh, put into the budget uh, for next year as well as a placeholder, uh, a similar amount uh, for us to continue to move towards because ultimately the, the chemistry of how much money we get in for road repair uh, and the needs, it's just such a big difference. Um, and we're gonna have to do something locally. And so this is really the demonstration of leadership by Mayor Romero and the city council to do exactly that. The pandemic is winding down, but far from over. As we move forward, it's clear that there will still be people who need support. Is it there? As you, as you may be aware, the city uh, is a recipient of some American Rescue Plan money. Uh, we have been earmarked for $139 million or $134 million. Uh, we have received uh, $67 million of that. Uh, unfortunately, the final guidance on how to use that has not been completed by the federal government, so we're sort of waiting. Uh, we have some preliminary guidance and we're starting to organize ourselves. But the key is making sure that it is there to support in a sustained way and manner uh, the, the needs of this community. And so we, we're, we're still working through that. We've got a few details that we're gonna be presenting to the council on August 10th. Uh, they have already weighed in on some of the preliminary thoughts and, and we'll be seeing a lot more detail here in the not too distant future. Okay, Mike Ortega, city manager of Tucson, thank you. Thank you for having me, I appreciate it. With the state government shutdown looming, Governor Ducey signed a budget on June 30th, the last day of the fiscal year. It concluded a lengthy legislative session that faced numerous hurdles when it came to passing a spending plan. The final deal included tax cuts that divided lawmakers on both sides of the aisle. For a breakdown, we got analysis from Arizona Capital Times reporter Julia Shamway. Julia, this was a long, exhaustive session that really went down to the wire. What would you say was the headline out of this year's session? I mean, it's clearly got to be the tax cuts. After years of trying, the Senate Republicans, House Republicans, Governor Ducey finally managed to get something that resembles a flat tax and amounts to the biggest tax cut Arizona's seen in years. It'll add up to close to $1.8 billion by the time it's fully phased in. It's historic, but already there's some concern that it only benefits the wealthy. As you have taken a deep dive into the numbers, what does it mean for the average Arizonan? So for the average Arizonan, say you're someone making somewhere between $30,000 and $75,000 a year, a middle-class person, you're going to get somewhere between about $17 and $34 back. Maybe you can go out, have a nice dinner. If you're making more than a million dollars a year, you're looking at getting $46,000 back. So it is a, a very big, dramatic difference between most Arizonans and those who are who are the wealthiest. The argument that conservatives voted for this tax cut will make is that those Arizonans who are getting the biggest tax cut also pay the most into our system. The wealthier you are, the more you pay. Now this tax cut will be phased in over the next three years. Once Arizona has a new governor, could that person, Democrat or Republican, shift course and change it? This person could, but it would take a lot of work. So once you have this, once you have a tax cut written in law, it's going to take a vote of two thirds of both the state house and the state Senate to undo it and to 
or to turn around and raise taxes in some other way. And while we may get a Democratic governor in the next couple of years, it's very unlikely that we're going to get a two thirds Democratic majority in both the House and the Senate. So they may be stuck with this. Okay, we'll talk politics in a minute. But first, education and public safety, always the biggest pools of the budget. Uh, Where do those two land here at the end of the session? It's been a banner year for state finances, and so education and public safety both got pretty substantial uh, amounts of the state budget. You've got DPS officers, corrections officers are getting raises. There's more funding for education, though, of course, as the governor frequently says, you can never check the box on public education. There's never going to be enough funding there. And I think teachers would agree with that, that there's not enough funding for schools still. Um, and then when it comes to higher ed, they really benefited from this this budget in part because one Republican senator held out and refused to vote for a long time. And so universities like the University of Arizona and ASU are getting millions of dollars more than they have in previous years. This was the slimmest margin the state capital has seen in a very long time, probably history. Um, you would know this the best. But when it comes to what these lawmakers tell us about the state's political makeup, what does that mean for the landscape looking forward to the next election cycle? So I think the big thing that we saw this year, especially from from the state legislature, is that it's a slim margin, but that doesn't mean there is any more bipartisanship. What you have left, the, the moderate Republicans are gone. You have left people who need to run to the right because the only thing they fear is a primary challenge. And so the state as a as a whole may be trending more purple or blue, but if you have enough Republicans in office being elected from really red parts of the state, we're going to keep having Republican priorities. You had Republicans, though, who crossed the aisle to vote with Democrats this session. What does that tell you? I think that shows in some cases that they're standing up to some of their own values. One of one of the cases that was most where this was most clear was with a couple of public school teachers, uh, Joel John from Buckeye, Michelle Udall from Mountain Mesa, both crossed the line and voted with Democrats to vote against voucher expansion. And I think their identity as public school teachers and people involved in the education system took precedence over their identity as Republicans in that case. In other cases, you have folks like Senator Paul Boyer, one of the few remaining Republicans who's representing an area that's growing more and more blue. He had a Democratic seat made elected this year. And in some cases, it can be a little more if you're still if you're representing an area that's no longer as Republican and you're trying to represent your constituents, you're going to cross the aisle more. OK. And finally, Julia, there is some idea that lawmakers take the summer off and go back to their districts and enjoy the warm weather. Is that really what they do before the next session begins? I think some of them are, are doing that. Some are out on vacations now. They were really eager to just end, take some time off, turn off their phones, get back to nature. But a number of them are still in Phoenix. And this year with the ongoing audit into the 2020 election, you've got a lot more people staying down there, hoping to do more work this summer on whatever those audit results show us. Julia Shamway, thank you for your reporting and your analysis from the Arizona Capital Times. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for now. Thanks for joining us. To get in touch, visit us on social media or send an email to Arizona360 at azpm.org and let us know what you think. We'll see you next week.